Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks! Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us from locally Phoenix, Arizona, is Brianna Stonelake. Uh, Brianna actually works in a field that I love, and it's helping people. So today we're going to talk to her a little bit about that, and then also how her philosophy on the metaphysical world affects her philosophy here in the actual realm that we all live in. Brianna, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, So the first question we always ask our guests is, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And uh, what generation, if any, do you belong to? Awesome. I am 35 years old, and I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, but raised in Minnesota. So I got a little bit of heat and the cold, and I ran back to the heat because I don't like to be cold. And what generation I belong to, honestly, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. I ultimately don't necessarily like what like claiming a certain generation because there's so many perceived notions on each specific generation instead of being like, hey, I am who I am and this is my age and, you know, I kind of bridge the gap of all of them. Awesome. That's a great answer and it's probably the closest to what my answer would be if I was ever a guest on my own show. So you're a belief strategist and a licensed clinical social worker. I'm sure everyone kind of knows what a social worker is, but belief strategist is probably a new term to many. So do you mind uh, starting out by defining that for us? Absolutely. So everything that we do is shaped by our belief system. So if we don't know what our belief systems are or where they even stem from, we can actually limit ourselves from being able to live the greatest life. So basically I help people shift their mindsets for greater success relationally, personally, and professionally. That's awesome. Wow. Um, And I can tell you answer that question a lot. Um, (laughs) And one of the things you mentioned that you help people with is marriages, relationships, but also business. And so I love the idea that you're really just helping people with anything and you have a lot of experience in the field. So um, I think actually the first question that kind of strikes my mind is what's one of your, and I don't need the pinnacle of it, but like what's a good success story of yours that you kind of could tell us? Oh goodness. So many things. Um, I have, I work with really high level clientele. So I love their intellect, their ability to invest in themselves. Uh, One of my clients is a VP and she had a lot of anxiety around getting on an airplane. She had done it for years. It was never an issue and she traveled quite a bit for work. So having that actually, that fear come in in case her where she couldn't actually get on a plane without having a panic attack was definitely not helpful for especially her work for everything that she does. And so we were actually able to work with her for just a couple months before we were able to get her on an airplane and recognize that there's a lot of a lot of internal lies and things that it stemmed from and a lot of fears that it kind of was compiling onto. And so that was pretty amazing. Also working with like another couple who were, when I first met with them, they, they were like, hey, we're going to separate. We can't do this. We're done. I can't be in the same room together. And then like fast forward six months, it was just one of my favorite things of her telling me, like, I love my husband so much. I can't believe I get to be with him. This is incredible. And while not to say they don't have their trials and tribulations, but also recognizing there's conflict is not a bad thing and, and learning how to handle conflict in a healthy way where it's more of a speed bump instead of an entire mountain that's going to ruin their lives. And so they just had another baby and they're incredibly happy. Sent me a picture recently. And yeah, one of, one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite things. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really special. And I'm in my second marriage, which is going great. And I do recognize the necessity of conflict in it. Yeah. So um, actually to expand on that, you mentioned lies and you also mentioned fears. I'm curious, 
is all fear a lie essentially, or am I just making that up based on what you said? Like, how would you kind of analyze that relationship between those two concepts? Well, it is actually quite interesting because we do have some healthy fear, right? So we have a fear of burning our hand in a fire. So we don't put our hands in the fire. We have a fear of heights. So we are mindful and use wisdom when it comes to that. So there is some healthy fear that keeps us back from making unwise decisions and unhealthy aspects of, I was climbing a mountain once and I wanted to go straight up and I had this internal fear that I was like, oh my gosh, I might just, if I miss a step, I'm going to fall off the mountain. Well, turns turns out I was on the wrong trail. So it was a good thing I had the healthy fear that kept me from going where I shouldn't go essentially. So there are those healthy fears that just kind of keep us back from hurting ourselves or anybody else, right? But the fear that really holds us back um, that is related to lies are the ones that disempowering our lives that feels discouraging, disappointment, like disappointing and oppressive. Those fears are related to lies that likely are rooted in childhood woundings or more adulthood woundings or different areas that we tend to not pay attention to. Wow, that's really profound. I'm just curious because I always like to ask people in your field about this. What happens when you have like a client and maybe this never happens, but they come to you and they're like, hey, I keep trying to succeed in my music career and I just can't succeed. And then like, maybe you listen to like a demo of theirs and you're like, oh, this person while talented and while passionate is not talented enough to actually make it in this world based on like what I understand about the music. And again, I'm making up a fake example. Uh, has that ever happened to you? And, and what would you tell someone who is like uh, imbalanced in the wrong way? In other words, they don't have uh, the limiting belief that maybe they should have. Interesting thought process. Um, ultimately, what it comes down to is there's a little bit of self-sabotage of when we're going after something um, that maybe we're not super talented in, or maybe that's not necessarily where we should be going. And so having balancing our dreams and the fantasy realm of I'd be, I'd be questioning, like, do you have this fantasy of becoming this ma- major music star based on trying to prove yourself to somebody else that you're worthwhile and that you're good enough? because everybody else is seeing you as this big superstar. Is that why you're actually going after it rather than going after it out of joy, out of talent, out of hope, right? The best thing is to do is to go after a job that is your natural talent. That's your gifting that you would really enjoy. That's kind of your field where you just like step into it. And you're like, I am so grateful for what I do. And this is incredible because ultimately when we do what we love and out of a space of talent and joy and love and out of a healthy place and we monetize it, that's, that's the best way to do it. And so if somebody is going after something that, well, they may have talent in, I would also question why they're consistently running after running into a steel door that's not opening over and over instead of paying attention to maybe doors around them that are opening of, hey, you might have talent, but maybe your maybe your goal is to be in or maybe needs to shift a little bit into like producing or being in another aspect of music. That's great. Wow. Yeah. I really like the way you think and answer. It's um, refreshing. And as you were answering it, I started thinking of all sorts of like really cool things I could be doing in my own life. So while I am not like banging up against closed steel doors, I do sometimes wonder how is one supposed to define success? Because, and I, and I say this with the following in mind, I listen to a lot of people who are like much, much, much more successful than I am in similar or different careers. And one of the things many of them talk about is that it's never enough until it's finally enough, but that is like a personal thing that if you don't understand that, it'll never be enough. Is what I'm asking kind of making sense to you? Sure. So what defines success ultimately? And I actually have a pretty simple answer for that. And it sounds ridiculous, 
but it's actually really powerful because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your life looks like. It matters what your life feels like. So I know a lot of really wealthy, successful people that are empty and broken and sad and feel completely alone at the end of the night. And while it looks like they have everything, they got the jets, they got the houses, they got the money, they got the seemingly perfect spouse or kids or house or whatever, but they're literally lonely and devastated on the inside. And so their life may look incredible, but they feel awful. And so it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter the external aspects. You can have all the wealth in the world and be fulfilled and happy and feel great about it. But you can also be like living in a uh, shack in the middle of nowhere and completely and utterly fulfilled. So it doesn't, it's not based on what it looks like because that looks are the fleeting, right? Either physical looks or external things that it looks like. But it's based on how you, how it feels, how you feel about yourself, your own decisions, how you interacted with people, how you feel like you are honest and integrous towards what you want and what your morals are, your values are, your character is. That, at the end of the day, matters more than anything. Wow, that's really, really a great answer. And I definitely agree with it. And I felt it, actually, um, and more recently than when I was younger. So I definitely, I, I not only believe that, but I think it's like a great, easy way to kind of examine your own life. Um, going back to something you said earlier, because I feel like it is related, um, how much of an adult's problems are based on like childhood incidents, do you think? If you had to guess like a percent or like how would you quantify that based on your experience and your, um, so your anecdotal observational experiences, but also what you've learned in all your training? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most people might hate this response, but I would say, I would say there's a high percentage, 90%, right? Um, of absolutely we go through things as adults that are difficult that also help define the lies that are created in childhood. And it could be, there could be positive and negative things that are rooted inside of us in childhood, whether that's an awesome work ethic, understanding like great communication, or it's the negative side where we learn abuse or get understanding that love, supposed love is painful and hurtful and actually is unhealthy. Um, so it can be anything, but ultimately like our, how we are designed and our brains are formed and function so dramatically within the first three to seven years of our lives. And so that part is so powerful and impactful in good for good and bad. So just recognizing like, Hey, this is where it kind of stems from not saying that the lies can't be created later on in life. You go through abusive relationships or a divorce or a loss of a child or something devastating and tragic. That also can create other lies of fears of safety or anxiety or depression and things. Absolutely. But I would also say that they can compile on the lies or fears that we've had in childhood. Wow. That's so interesting. And I love that you set it up with it's probably going to upset people because, yeah, for me, it's, it's not upsetting so much as I always thought my childhood was incredibly happy. And when I review it, it still seems incredibly happy. And yet I, just like every other human, have these issues and so I, I kind of wonder where where they came from and then also how much I should be addressing them versus just maturing and growing out of them. So what is um, what is the fastest path, in your opinion, to uh, rid yourself of a limiting belief from childhood? Yeah, first of all, being like, it's okay that your parents or your family life aren't perfect. Well, you might have had like an incredible childhood, that's, like that's amazing and that's powerful, but there's no perfect family. We're all human and we all flawed. We all make mistakes. We all say the wrong thing. We all do the wrong thing. 
You do that in marriages, as parents, as kids. I mean, the reality is, again, life is full of conflict and mistakes and mishaps, but how we handle them is kind of what the difference is. And understanding that any, you know, there can be an easy misspoken thing of a parent saying, oh, gosh, I'm worried about finances. And then a, a three-year-old child with a three-year-old understanding taking in the thought of, oh, my gosh, we're poor and I'm never going to have to do anything. And I always have to save. And, oh, my gosh, I have to take care of myself and I'm a burden. I mean, again, it doesn't mean that the parent said any of that. It doesn't mean that any of that was communicated or necessarily intended to. But the understanding of a child in any circumstance is is limited because they're still growing. Their brain is still understanding. So being okay with the fact that your family or your childhood isn't perfect. It may have been amazing, and that's incredible. But there's always spaces to grow and learn, and that's okay. And so just the first and best path is to just have awareness and be okay with that's a, with things that are not okay, that your family's not perfect, that your parents aren't perfect, that they didn't say or do everything perfect. And that also takes the pressure off them of like, yeah, they're not able to be perfect. Neither of you are you as a husband or a parent, like you're not going to be perfect and that's okay. And owning that and being like, Hey, I'm here kiddo. And you want to talk about like, oops, dad messed up. I, you know, said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, but I did it to the best I could. And so just allowing yourself space to jump in and dive in and be like, Oh, okay. With, with imperfections, there comes pain sometimes. Yeah, that's cool. I think about this a lot because I think, um, admitting faults, out loud to anyone is difficult for most of us and to yourself is also difficult but I kind of wonder um because this podcast is called Coffin Talk and it's about death and dying and I tend to find that like children have to be told to fear death like there's this weird like thing where you tell them is that true or am I just making this up um I think there's I mean I think there's like an instilled piece of it I think it's environmental and internal of we internally know that death isn't great. And ultimately what a kid sees when somebody passes away is a lot of people sad, a lot of people crying, a lot of people upset. Um, and so it automatically says, oh, no, this isn't good, especially based on what your family life is, whether it's like we're okay to be sad or we're okay not to be sad or we're not allowed to have those sad emotions. Um, that can, can communicate to them what death means or what that looks like. And a lot of times, um, even as adults, we don't always know what to say when somebody dies. There's no perfect thing. Obviously, we can't, even I don't always know what the right thing to say is. There is no right thing at the end of the day because we can't bring back the loved one. We can't make it the pain go away, even if we want to. And so ultimately, just being there and being present, but having conversations with your kids is really important of what this means, what this looks like. My sister does an excellent job with her kids having conversations and I've always encouraged my siblings to be like, hey, talk to your kids as early as they can, what's age appropriate, so they don't don't ever have to wonder and they get the information from the parent first versus the world or other external factors that create deeper levels of fear. And it's, you know, death isn't a thing to fear. Again, there's a healthy fear in it and we don't need to be afraid of it, but also it's a part of life. And so how do we handle that? How do we communicate that to kids? is really important. That's awesome. Um, and I would like to now flip the tables and just really ask you, like, what's your personal 
um, thoughts on, on dying. And, I, and I've started rephrasing it the way I ask the question. So I used to just say, what do you think happens when someone dies? But now I'm making sure I'm very clear. What do you think will happen to you when you die? Like, make sure you, you think you give the personal answer, please. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I don't want to die. I'm excited to live a very fulfilled and happy, healthy, happy life. But at the end of the day, like, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a fear of death. I know that when it's the right time, it's the right time. I trust God fully and completely and I'm a Christian, so I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And so that in in death, when I close my eyes in death, and I actually like end up in heaven. So for me, I'm like, that's a win-win. Granted, <laughs> don't want to leave the people I we, uh, you know love behind. But I really believe in the afterlife. I believe in heaven. I believe that Jesus has redeemed all sin and creation in itself. And so there's a lot of hope in the afterlife. There's a lot of hope for what's next. And ultimately I'm like, yeah, I know that's not everybody's beliefs and I'm okay with it. But if at the end of the day, it gives me hope and joy in that, I think I'm okay with believing it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, uh, disparaging or acknowledging that it's the truth, but I, I've, but I've always noticed that people who are confident in a happy result after death, whether they're lying to themselves or not is so irrelevant to me because it, what really should matter is what you actually said earlier, which is how does your life feel? And, and on that point, were you raised to believe that or is that something you came to on your own? Um, sure. So I was raised in a very um, uh, strict Christian church um, where there was a lot of really awesome foundation for who Christ himself was. What I learned later on is I missed a lot of the foundation for a healthy relationship and who the real Jesus was. So I grew up with a really religious Jesus that was scary and it was this big God in the sky that's going to smite you at any moment. And so at 18, I was like, screw this. God, you suck. I'm not good enough for you anyways. Why bother trying? Because this is exhausting. Right. Yeah. And so I kind of left him completely and was like, this is dumb. Why am I going to do this? This is stupid. But what I came to realize as an adult is like there's this there's this actual difference of the religious Jesus versus the real Jesus, the Jesus who was kind and loving, who like called out the religious people of the day, the Jesus who loves with a like unabandonedly, like unconditionally, constantly. And so when I met Holy Spirit, who empowers us to live a life with Jesus, my entire world was changed. My entire being was changed. And I realized like my biggest lie in life was that I was not worth loving. And then I met true love through Jesus himself and God himself. And it, I mean, it's the best thing in the world. I don't understand why people don't want to feel this constant, amazing love, but that is just me. And it's a whole different thing. And so religion, I, I've seen it hurt me, and I've gotten a lot of church hurt out of that in the past, and I've seen it hurt and damage and destroy a lot of people. And that's religion, not relationship with Jesus. And so that's, that's what I had to learn, and that's what I, you know, had a lot of pain and had to work through myself. But I'm so grateful, actually. Wow. And I think that's like a really profound, excellent way to kind of package it. Um, gosh, we're, we have some time left, but I have so many questions I've written down. Um, I'm curious uh, what sparked your interest in your career. Um, and I'm specifically speaking to the side that my words, not yours, but in a loving way, I'm from the Bay Area of California, the hippie side of it, the the idea that you're a belief strategist, not just a social worker, because I always, I'm attracted to people who are, uh, my words, brave enough to kind of venture off the like 
somewhat accepted path and to go into these other, at least in our culture, different, you know, perspectives. So what, what was kind of the link to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been a licensed clinical social worker and I've been in the mental health field for 11 years. And while there is so much amazing things about the mental health field and so much power in what they do and how they help people, um, what I've actually noticed is there's a lot of things that have tied my hands from actually being able to help my clients the way that they need, the way that they, um, to coordinate care, the best recommendation for care. I mean, I've had my undergrad and master's in this and have been in it forever. Um, and so what, honestly, what changed, um, and I've been thinking about it for a while, but there was a space in time that, um, my mom almost passed away. And so I had to travel to another state in order to be with her and kind of help her through that process and help my family through the process. And all this just kind of basically, link together to go through the most traumatic time of our lives. Um, and I had a therapist cause I'm also like, I will never ask somebody to do something I have not done myself because that's just rude and hypocritical. <laughs> so I also have had my own ther- therapist, but, um, so the one time I really truly needed a therapist more than ever, um, in my state of crisis, she was not able to continue care with me because I was out of state <laughs> and, said, call me when you get back. And I was like, are you kidding me? I have no idea how long I'm going to be gone for. I have no idea. Like, this is the most ridiculous thing because there's a state law that like hindered kind of going across borderlines. And so there's just been things like that, that have been really frustrating for me as like, as a clinician of like, this is ridiculous. I can help my clients in so many different ways, but I'm technically not allowed to based on a licensure. And I understand. Um, I respect my license. I respect like the ethical board, but I also was like, I want to be able to help less hindered. And so that's how I stepped into police strategist where I can actually do a little bit more life with my clients and have more priority and access that I can give to them um, in a space rather than not being able to follow up with them based on, you know, location or, circumstances of life that will inevitably hit. Very cool. And before I give you the floor to kind of like have your way with our audience and tell them exactly what you think about whatever you want to talk about, because that's my actual favorite question to ask, I would like to know, can you, if you're willing, um, can you give us an example of something that you had like a fear from your youth or a, a fear that you've carried that you cured and just kind of like how that worked just for one more example for people? Because I'm always inspired by these stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I used to perform for love upside down and backwards. Again, my biggest lie was I was not worth loving. Um, and I saw that played out and reiterated through negative life circumstances with friendships leaving me or, you know, a church leaving me and, you know, or unhealthy relationships. And so I saw that reiterated over and over. And so instead I stepped into performance trying to desperately prove that I was worthwhile prove that I was worth loving, all these things. I'm actually grateful for it because I got my master's during that time. So whoop, whoop. But, <laughs> but ultimately, like, I now, there's just this level of, like, I can be completely and utterly who I am. And I am the same when I'm, like, meeting with clients, when I'm in the grocery store, when I'm, like, out with friends. Like, who I am doesn't shift or change based on where I'm at. I'm always a little ridiculous and weird and embrace things. I might be dancing in the grocery store hallway, I might, you know, dance in a session, whatever, like it happens. And so actually being able to find the space where I can fully 
embrace who I am and embrace what that looks like, love myself really well. So I don't have to prove to anybody that I'm worth loving. And the ultimate thing is, is when you are constantly trying to prove you're worth loving, you're pushing love away because you're performing and not being your real self. And ultimately when you start loving yourself, that's when people can actually really love you. And so that's, I, I did that in my life. And so I know what that's like. I know what it feels like and I know the shift. And that's why I get to constantly tell my clients like, just wait, I promise you it will get better because I know what that's like. I know what the process feels like. And performance is a huge part of a society that keeps people so stuck and held back. And again, we need to perform. We've been taught since childhood. We got to perform in school. We got to perform in sports. We got to perform for grades. We got to perform for jobs. Well, again, performance in itself is not like an evil thing. We have to show up. We have to work. We have to do all these things. But we have to do it authentically and as ourselves and not trying to prove. Yeah. The, one of my, I'm a writer. And one of the things I try very often to write about to my readers, because I think it's going to help us all is how much social media is about performativity instead of like authenticity. And yep. That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I just think that we're running into this weird thing where we're starting to demonize social media, which to me, I've kept in touch with like a hundred friends from when I was 18 and I'm 40 now. And yeah. like, so I don't want social media to go away. Right. Um, but I, I would like to know what, what would you tell people who are like overwhelmed with um, the fact that other people don't share their values and are not going to share their values? I, I just see a lot of conflict right now in the world is like, people are like, how can you not share my values? How would you speak to them? I would say you don't have to like think the same in order to love people. And this world has been so divisive lately. And I have friends that think completely differently than me and being able to adopt the mindset that because somebody thinks differently, has different morals, different values, different thought processes actually creates you to be a well-rounded, healthy human because it constantly is challenging you how you think and not in like a, in a hostile way. We can never force somebody to believe the same way we do. That is not our job and it should not be our focus because if we're constantly focusing on trying to get somebody else to believe the same way that we do, we're basically just focusing on anger, negativity, sadness, hurt, and it's only hurting ourselves. How about we actually like love is the only thing that transforms anything. And I know that sounds all like hippy-dippy, lovey-dovey, but honestly, showing up with compassion, with kindness, having a discussion. If there's an argument, I will not talk about it. If you want to have a discussion and help me like expand my thought processes, love it. Absolutely. This is where I think. This is why I think. But I, it is never my job or my heart to ever try to convince somebody to believe the way that I do. That is not my job. I can have an awesome discussion about it and, you know, maybe somebody thinks or see something different or a different perspective, cool. But ultimately, like, my job is to love people really well, where they're at, how they are. And if I only love people who are exactly like me, that's not real love. I love it. And I also love the irony that we have to, like, say, I know this sounds lovey-dovey and hippy-dippy, like, as if those are pejoratives. When, right, you know, right. when did being loving become a pejorative? And I really right. would ask all of my listeners to really think about that. Um, yeah. But we are running out of time, so I do always give my guests uh, the floor at the end of the interview. So whatever you would like to say, uh, please. Absolutely. So I would say, like, pain is part of the process of life. Do not run away from the pain. Do not hide it. Do not hide behind alcoholism, drugs, sex, rock and roll, whatever it is. It will still follow you. And I promise you, it sucks to sit in the pain, 
but it is so worth it. It is so powerful. And focus on every step of your progress, every bit of progress you've made in your life. Celebrate it. Champion it. If you've been sober for eight minutes, celebrate it. If you've been like seeing one tiny little baby step of progress, celebrate it. You are so incredible. You're created on purpose for a purpose. You're not here by accident. You're not here by mistake. You are an incredible human being, and there's nobody else in the world like you. This world needs you. The way you think, the way you see things, the way you're wired, you are incredible. Brianna Stone, like, thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Um, this was an extraordinary interview. Um, I will have all the notes for how to find her, but if you just Google her name, you'll find her uh, contact information, and uh, she can help you, and she can help you even if you're not in her state, so uh, there's an extra plug for you. Um, and for everyone at home, um, thank you again for listening to our show, and uh, if you want to help us out, uh, the best way is just to subscribe to the weekly essays and also to the podcast, and then spread the word if you feel like it. But uh, to everyone at home, please try to think about what uh, Brianna said today, because I think it's really powerful. Give in to the love. Don't resent it and uh, accept who you are. And then I love how you ended it with sitting in the pain. I think that's a really interesting and good uh, message for our audience. So thank you again. And to everyone at home, my name is Mike Oppenheim. This has been another episode of Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon. Walking alone. Walking alone. When I hear this song, man, I'm walking to you.